0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Miami, Florida, with a combination of real estate, financial planning, and modeling with numbers specific to Miami, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Miami. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors.
1: Hello, welcome. I'm James Orr. Tonight we're going over the nomad real estate investing strategy. So the primary strategies that we're focused on in the podcast and the classes are the ones on the left here. So buy and hold real estate investing, including short term vacation rentals. That was last week's class. All the Nomad stuff, which we're covering tonight, Nomad by proxy, Nomad with house hack, Nomad to short-term vacation rentals, Nomad with lease option exit, and then the ultimate real estate agent retirement plan. Those are all the ones I'm gonna to cover tonight, so I'm not gonna go into those. And then house hacking. So these this is like our primary group of people that we're trying to serve. So buy and hold, Nomad and house hackers. And then the secondary strategies, which I'll cover more for being a completionist than really that I'm trying to tailor our classes to this. So you'll, you'll get stuff here and there from me So creative financing, owner financing, subject to rent to own, lease option, lease purchase, the ultimate strategy, uh, quick turning and flipping properties, the BRRRR strategy, the buy, rehab, rent, refi, I always have to like pause and like go through the R's in order. Um, Wholesaling, wholetailing, options and option auction, tax liens and tax deeds, partnerships and syndications, deal maker, syndicator, money partner and loan partner. And then the stuff I'm not even gonna bother covering is real estate investment trusts. Go talk to your stockbroker about those um, and cover it in other strategies. So if you're like, hey, what about probate, James? Or what about short sales? Or what about foreclosures? Or what about short, or pre-foreclosures? Yeah, those are all going to be sprinkled into all the other stuff. Most of the probate, short sales, foreclosures, pre-foreclosures is going to be primarily creative financing, although they do show up in some other spots. But I'm not going like, to do separate classes about that as its own strategy. It's really sort of a subset of other strategies. That's why I'm not covering it. So I wanted to acknowledge that. I'm not skipping it over. It's just sort of not big enough as its own sort of topic. Does that make sense everybody? All right, cool. Um, If you've got questions, let me know, interrupt. I do ask that you use the microphone though so we can get it on the recording. Okay, so uh, in preparation for this series of classes on real estate investing strategies, I made a database, and I will put a link in the kind of like video section for people to go look at, but I made a database in Notion that allows you to go in and look at all the different strategies and all these different characteristics. So, you have a handout tonight, it's called Real Estate Investing Strategy Profile, and it's got all these different like, views or ways to measure investing strategies. You know, everything from down payment is, is scalable, how you get into the deals, how you exit the deals, how you do the financing to acquire the property, how you do the financing when you're exiting. You know, all these different areas that are kind of like characteristics. So I have this database that I've been working on making for all the different strategies, like all the ones tonight, all the ones last week, all the ones in the future classes we're doing on the strategies. And then you'll be able to say, show me all the deals we can do that don't require any money down. Or show me all the deals that I can do that are, I don't know, for wealth building, or that are highly scalable, or um, that require little money down, or whatever it is that you want to look into. So the database is searchable and also able to be grouped and viewed in different ways. And so um, the reason I bring this up is, if I, have a, if I have a particular strategy and I've grouped it one way, is it possible you'll be like, but James, what about this other really obscure sort of like unusual situation where I can do that with this thing. Yeah, so there's exceptions to everything, right? Like, you can do creative financing inside the MLS. It's not likely, right? It's really rare. But you can do it. So, I've tried to categorize the strategies, but there are lots of exceptions. Sure, you could find a deal or structure a deal to make choices that are not in line with what I've defined here. But the idea is, just because you don't think there's a chance that X can happen, doesn't mean it won't happen. This is designed to be a starting point discussion to help you make better investing decisions on your own with additional knowledge. Of course, do your own research and make sure that you understand what's happening. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay. All right, so nomad variations. This is what we're covering tonight. So there's the traditional nomad model. And for those of you that have never heard the concept of nomad before, Nomad is uh, something I named. It's not something I invented because people have been moving into houses, moving out of houses and converting to rentals since the beginning of time. That's why we have a woolly mammoth as our logo. So you know way back in the day when people were riding woolly mammoths around, they had their cave and they left their cave and they rented out the cave to the person who was coming behind them and they kind of charged the money for it. It's like that old. Okay. So the traditional nomad model is you buy a house as an owner occupant. You move into the property. You get owner-occupant financing. There's a reason we want owner-occupant financing. It's because it has a lower interest rate usually and you have less down payment required. So those are the two primary advantages. So you buy a property as an owner-occupant, you move in, you live there for a year. The year requirement is not something I just made up. It's not mathematically based. It is a document you sign at closing that says to the lender, I agree in exchange for getting this lower down payment and better interest rate loan that I will live in the property for a year. If your lender does not require that, you don't need to follow it. But almost every loan I've ever seen that is like a conventional type loan or FHA loan or VA loan has had this document in there. So you're not gonna be able to just say, I'm only going to do a three-month nomad. I'm going to speed this thing up. I'm going to do four a year instead of one a year because James doesn't know what he's talking about. Nope, James does know what he's talking about. If he says a year, it's probably there in the document. So make sure you read it and you understand that if you actually don't live there for a year, you are committing loan fraud. You go to prison for that. Okay. So do not commit loan fraud. If the lenders suddenly change it and they say, look, we require now that you live in the property for two years, I will start teaching two-year nomad. If they tell me 18 months, I'm going to teach you 18-month NOMAD. They tell you three years, I'm going to teach you three-year NOMAD. Right now, they're telling me a year, so that's what I'm teaching you. You follow the obligations that the lender requires from you. You comply, okay? So you move into the property. You live there for a year. It is a requirement of the lender that you live there for a year. Once you're done with the year, you convert the property to a rental and you buy your next property to owner-occupy. So really, if you had two down payments, if you had down payments for two 20% down rentals, by doing the nomad strategy, you could acquire eight rentals instead. Because instead of putting 20% down, you put 5% down. And the financing is much better. If you look at this, i give you another handout. It's called type, loan type mortgage insurance comparison thing. And it shows you the different interest rates and down payments required for different loans, owner, occupant, and investors. The interest rate for the 20% down investment property as of the time of this recording was 6.625 with two points. The rate for 5% down paying monthly PMI is 5.5 with no points. So your interest rate is considerably better when you do owner-occupant. Okay, And even though you're putting less down, and it's probably going to be a little bit higher payment, it's not as much higher as you might have thought because the interest rates are better. Okay. So Nomad is, in the most simplest form, buy a house as an owner-occupant, move in, live there for a year, convert the property to a rental, buy the next property, repeat as many times as you want to achieve the number of rental properties that you want to acquire. Okay. That's the most simple version. Now, all of these are variations. Okay. I'll cover those in a second, but for nomad, you're typically putting owner occupant financing 0% down. There are two primary primary 0% down loans, the USDA loan for rural properties. um, so those are the two, Oh, sorry i only do one of them so usda and va va is a loan that you can get if you're a veteran um, that's another nothing down loan program usda you have to do a rural property va you have to be a veteran in order to get them so those are the two nothing down programs the next lowest down payment is the three percent down conventional loan that's on your sheet and there's two different flavors of that there's the uh, lender paid pmi version and then there's the lender um, the, um, the monthly PMI version. You can do an upfront PMI payment. You could pay a one-time lump sum fee and get rid of PMI. So there's really three flavors of PMI. But really, the two that we are going to discuss most and the two that are on your sheet are the lender paid PMI or the owner-occupant paid monthly PMI. So that's 3% down conventional. The 3.5% down loan is the FHA loan. The FHA loan also allows you to buy duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes. So you could do a 3.5% down duplex, 3.5% down triplex or 3.5% down fourplex. The other loan that allows you to buy multifamily as an owner occupant is the VA loan. So the VA, you can also do duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes. Okay? So that's FHA. FHA uh, PMI never goes away, by the way, it's there forever. So you'll probably want to refinance out of that at some point. Um, although, if, the rates, if you got a really good rate on it and rates have gone up considerably from there, maybe it's still cheaper for you to actually keep the PMI and not refinance, so that could come up too. And then the last one that traditional nomads use, which is probably the primary one that the overwhelming majority of them are going to use, is the 5% down conventional loan, because VA and USDA, they limit the number you could have. VA, it's based on your benefits. USDA, I think it's one, although I could be wrong about that, but I think it's just one that you could have USDA. And then 3% down conventional. I think you can only do that once. Um, and then 3.5% down FHA. There are some really unusual exceptions. Like if you move a certain distance out of the area, you can use your FHA benefits again. But really, you're only going to be able to have one FHA loan on your social security number at any given time. And then finally, 5% down. You can have as many of those as you want, as many as you can qualify for. So when people tell you, look, I'm only able to get you know, 10 conventional loans, that's true, except for owner-occupant. You can get an 11th owner-occupant loan, so you can get an 11th 5% down loan. You can get a 12th one, you can get a 13th one, you can get a 15th one. As long as you have your debt to income ratio where it is, and you have enough income to qualify, um, you can qualify for as many of the 5% down loans as you want, as long as you're owner-occupant. But once you get to 10, it's gonna be really hard for you to get a conventional investor loan, not an owner-occupant. Pause for a drink. Okay. So that's traditional nomad. All the financing stuff pretty much applies to these other ones too. But fixer upper nomad is buying a property that needs work where you live in it, you move into the property, you live there, you do the fix up work, then you convert it to a rental after a year, you know, 18 months or two years, whatever time period works for you. But a year minimum. That's what fixer upper nomad is all about. Buying properties at a discount, putting in money in order to fix them up, and then converting them to rentals by living in them. Different than Burr, right? Because Burr, you're not living in properties. Ah uh, what's that? Not it You're not refinancing. That's also another good point, thanks Nick. So Rachel asks are, are you able to buy a property um, as an owner occupant with a hard money loan, move in there do the um, you know do the rehab and then refinance it into an owner occupant loan. You probably could if you could get a hard money lender to allow you to move into a Um, a property with a hard money loan, usually hard money loans are considered commercial loans, and there are different laws and regulations about making owner-occupant loans as a a commercial lender. Most commercial lenders do not want you moving into your properties that they have hard money loans on, and so I would think you'd need to probably have a private loan, probably not hard money, or a hard money lender that doesn't really know what they're doing, Um, (laughs) and they're willing to take on that risk. Um, and then, or you do all the rehab before you move in, then you move in and do the refinance where you do that. But then that becomes more of a burr. And if you're, yeah, I'd have to think about that one. I'd like to talk to you. Yeah, I'd have to think about that one. I don't, I don't have a lot of people doing that. But I guess you could do some variation on that. I wonder how the the, the delayed financing loan would work. Because usually the, the BRRRR stuff is at 20% down payment or 80% loan to value. And so that's what we're targeting for our kind of like rate and term refi. When you're doing a delayed one and you have rehab money, I don't know if you could do the 5% down loan programs anymore. You might have to still do like 20% down, which kind of defeats a lot of the benefits of doing Nomad. So I don't know, I have to think about that one. And maybe if a lender is listening to this and you want to research that and reach out to me, my email address is at the end of the presentation. Okay, so fixer or Nomad, that's buying a property at discount, living there for a year, converting it to a rental. Nomad by proxy. How many people like the idea of moving into a property every year? Just one in the room. Okay. Everyone else, Nomad by proxy, is getting someone else to move in on your behalf. If you have kids and you want to encourage them to get started investing in real estate, and let's say you had planned on buying you know, 20% down, buy and hold, owner-occupant, not owner-occupant, non-owner-occupant investment properties. Well, instead of doing that, you could say, look, I'm going to take this 20% I had set aside for down payments, and I have two kids. I'm going to have them buy two properties each over the next two years. They're just getting out of college, or maybe they're in college, and you're saying, look, I'm going to buy you a property there. We're going to put 5% down. You're going to live there while you're in college. You're going to get three roommates for your, your college buddies, and you're going to stay there for a year, Next semester, you're moving. I'm having you buy another property with 5% down. You're living in the property, and we're going to kind of repeat that to do it as many times as we can that I've got down payments for and I can qualify for loans. That's a variation of Nomad. It's called Nomad by Proxy, where someone else is moving in on your behalf. We also have some clients that are doing it with their parents. Parents are moving in from out of the area. They want to be near their grandkids. You know, the, the, the kids' kids. I guess that's grandkids. Um, but they're basically saying, look, mom and dad, I'll tell you what, you come out here I will put the down payment up for you to move into a property. We'll both own the property together. When you pass on, we just have an understanding that I am inheriting this property. You change your will, right? So you can live in it for the year. You're gonna pay me rent, but you're gonna be the ones that get an owner-occupant loan. I'm gonna put 5% down. You're gonna move in. You're gonna be the owner-occupant on there. I'm gonna help co-sign because you're retired and maybe you can't qualify for the loan. Maybe you don't have the down payment, but that's another version of Nomad by Proxy. Okay, Nomad's a short-term rental. so. Same idea, no med, you nomad, you buy a property, you live there for a year, but at the beginning, bless you, at the beginning, you decide, hey, look, I'm not just buying a straight-up long-term rental property. I want to find a property that has really good short-term rental or vacation rental properties where this would be a great vacation rental once I move out. And so you, move that, you you move into the property, you live there for a year, and at the end, instead of converting it to a year-long lease with a regular tenant long-term rental type property, you convert it to a short-term or vacation rental. And you're just renting it out to... You know, like weekend people, people in for whatever they're doing. So traditional short-term rental. Once it becomes a short-term rental, it's like you had acquired it for a short-term rental. So the way you acquired it was 5% down, or 3% down, or 3.5% down, or 0% down, in order to get the deal to begin with. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, Nomad with house hacking. So some nomads buy a property with the intention of having other people living in the same unit. The most common one is duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes, where someone buys a duplex, they live in one half, and they rent out the other. That's the most traditional kind of house hacking thing, except with Nomad, you're buying the property with the intention of, after a year, I'm moving out, and I'm converting all of it to a rental. And then I'm going to buy my next property, and buy my next property, buy my next property. And most of the time, you're unable to do like sequentially a lot of duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes because you're limited in the loan types that allow you to do these multifamily. You can only do really one FHA. Maybe you get one, maybe your spouse gets another one. Maybe you get divorced, get remarried again, you get your next spouse to do a third one. Maybe you do something fancy like that. But for the most part, you're gonna be hard pressed to do more than two or three at most. I and mean, maybe you have a VA benefits, you do your VA loan first, then you do your FHA loan, then your spouse does an FHA loan. Maybe if you and your spouse were military and you each got a VA loan and you each got FHAs, maybe you get to four. But that's going to be really hard to do in very s- specific circumstances to do it. Okay, so that's basically so the house hacking idea is you buy a property, usually it's duplex, triplex, or fourplex. You get roommates for the other units. But you can also do it if you buy a single family home and you want to rent out certain rooms. Or maybe you decide to get an RV. You live in the RV, you rent out the main house, you kind of live in the backyard or the driveway, you can get kind of creative with this idea. Or maybe you've got like a three car detached garage, and you rent out the spaces, that's another version of house hacking, right? It's like renting out part of the property that you're living in is the definition of house hacking. Okay, so all those different variations exist, Nomad with house hacking. The nomad with lease option exit. So- Nomading. You move in. So you buy the property. You move in. You live there for a year. At the end of the year, instead of converting it to a long-term, one year at a time lease, you say, "I'm going to go find a tenant buyer, someone who wants to purchase this property, but they need a year or two or three in order to get something in line in order to be able to qualify to buy it. Maybe it's enough down payment, or maybe it's you know time on their new job or." Um, get their debt to income right or their credit score up or whatever, but they want to rent it from you for a year or two or three with the option to buy it from you from a year or two or three down the road. And so you buy a property, you live there for a year, then you find a tenant buyer instead of a regular tenant and you actually lease option it to them where they um, give you an option fee and then they lease it from you and then they exercise the option at some point in the future or if they don't exercise the option you get the property back and you presumably find another tenant buyer to come in and eventually buy that property from you one of the big benefits of doing this strategy is it can in the right in an ideal situation it can eliminate the need for your second and third and fourth and fifth so on down payments because you could get an option fee from the tenant buyer that is coming in to lease option the property from you that is at least 5% that will cover your down payment on the property that you're moving into and buying. So you could, in in theory at least, actually acquire the properties where you do, um, your option fee covers the down payment for property number two, and then once you're in property number two for a year and you're gonna lease option the next one, the option fee from property number two could be be your down payment for property number three that you're buying and do this. It makes it a lot easier if you at least have the down payment so that you can front it, and then you get it back after they, you know, a year or two. But you can You can technically, and I, lenders have told me they're able to do this. You can technically use that option fee if you get it in advance as your down payment for the next property. Okay. Oh, I'll add one more thing about this lease option thing, which will come up later tonight when I go over the uh, other part of it, and that is. What do you do when the tenant buyer, what I call pops out the property, they actually execute their option and they purchase it from you and you walk away with a lump sum of cash. What do you do with that extra cash? Well, I usually combine this nomad with lease option exit with an additional parallel path of you buying 20% down rentals or 25% down rentals with the extra money you have when they sell. Because you can only move in so often. You can only move in once a year. And eventually, you'll have more down payment money than you need for doing Nomad. So eventually, you probably will convert that money either in the stock market or something else. Or you use it as down payments to buy 15% down, 20% down, or 25% down rentals. Does that make sense? Then you don't have to move into those. So you would be buying two in a year instead of one. And I did a whole class. I actually wrote a book on this. But I did a whole class on this strategy. I think I called it it something like how to acquire a multi-million dollar real estate portfolio starting with just $3,000. And the idea was the $3,000 covered you to buy um, a single property to start with, and then you used option fees in order to acquire the next ones doing lease option exits on all of them. Um, and I gave away the book for Christmas one year. Do you guys remember what year that was, 2017, 2018? It was a long time ago, right? Before the bad times. Before the bad times. <laughs> I, but, I, but I gave away that as a Christmas gift. And yeah. did you guys ever read it? I thought it was a pretty decent book when I wrote it. So if you could find, there's a class on that. I may have even taught it multiple times. I think I taught it multiple times. Anyway, that's the idea. So that's Nomad with Lease Option Exit. And then the last one is, what if you were going to Nomad, but you got your real estate license? So instead of having to come up with 5% down, you come up with 5% down, but you get paid a 3% commission when you buy a property for yourself. And so really, you're net out of pocket 2%. So you put 5% up, you immediately get 3% back, so you actually are able to acquire properties with less down. And so we're gonna walk through the math tonight of what I'm calling the ultimate real estate agent retirement plan. You have a real estate license and when you buy your own properties, instead of having to come up with 5%, you can actually get a rebate and get you know, net 2%. Or maybe you buy your first property 3% down, and you get 3% back, you had nothing in the deal. Okay, so that's an example of that. Any questions on the variations? I'm gonna go through a lot more detail, but I wanted to cover what they are so that you understand what they are as we go through the kind of like different perspectives. Yeah, microphone for Nick, if you would, Rachel. Thank you. Are you violating the <clears throat> uh, loan by doing the short-term rental and short-term renting it before your one year is up? So you're saying, hey, what if I move out of the property early at 11 months and I convert it? No, you still live in it, but like on, just on the weekends, you rent it out. And oh, I don't think so. I think you could actually do you could do vacation rentals in the first year on an owner-occupant loan. That's my understanding. And the example I'm using to cite that is you can buy a vacation home. You put 10% down. It's technically an owner-occupant second home type loan, but you're renting that out to vacation people in that first year. I don't think there's any laws or rules about that. And, you know, uh, let, me, let me back up and say this. Check with your lender because I, I'm not a lender. I don't know. And your lender may have different rules or your loan, or they may have changed the rules since you listened to this recording. But go check with your lender and ask them those questions. But my understanding is that there is no problem with that. Yeah, good question. All right, any other questions on these? You guys are like this? Is pretty cool. It's got a cool class. Oh, see? Check it out. All right, so now I'm going through this kind of like real estate investing strategy profile, and I'm gonna just start talking about the different characteristics of this strategy um, and the kind of like where it lies. So is this a real estate investing strategy or a real estate entrepreneurship strategy? And I define the difference as this. When you're investing, your primary goal is to take money and get a return on that money. So you put out money and you're expecting to get a return on it. Real estate entrepreneurship is different. You're kind of like starting a business and you expect to get paid primarily for the time you've got invested. Not necessarily the money you're putting into deals, but the work that you're putting in. And so with traditionally with buy and hold, you put up you know, 20% down, or 25% down, and you want to make it as passive as possible. You're not really trying to get a return on your time. You're trying to get a return on that 20% or that 25% down. With real estate entrepreneurship, you might be going buying properties creatively, you know, lease options or subject to or something like that, where you're primarily going out, you're doing marketing Marketing. You're talking to sellers. You're getting a seller to agree to some type of creative financing deal. Maybe you're not putting a lot of money in the deal, but you have a lot of time and effort put into it. And so that's real estate entrepreneurship, where you're trying to get a return on the time you put in, primarily versus the money. So nomading, in my opinion, is investing. It is you're putting up some money and you're doing this. There's not a lot of extra work to nomading more so than just picking out the property, acquiring the property, moving in. So most of the time, people are typically thinking of real of nomad real estate investing as an investing strategy rather, rather than real estate entrepreneurship. However, there are strategies that are more entrepreneurial. They, they take more effort and more work. For example, fix your upper nomad. You're moving into your property. You're doing manual labor. Either you're managing a contractor or contractors or, or um, you know trades in order to come in and do stuff for you, or you're doing it yourself, or you're actually swinging the hammer and laying flooring and painting and stuff like that in order to do that. That's pretty active. That's pretty entrepreneurial in my opinion. So these are more entrepreneurial. Fixer Upper Nomad. Nomad to short-term rental. Unless you're hiring a property manager and it's really hands-off for you, that one's probably going to be more hands-on, more entrepreneurial, more active. Nomad with lease option exit, you're finding those tenant buyers. That's a lot of extra work. You're kind of managing that process of, um, you know, seeing them through to actually buying the property from you. That's a little bit more work. So those are a little bit more entrepreneurial in my mind. Now, remember I said at the beginning, there's like exceptions. You're like, geez, what about this? Yeah, it's, it's gray, right? I mean, some of these are more than others, but it's not like black and white. This, this, this is that. This is more investing. This is, these three ones are more entrepreneurial. Not that they are absolutely entrepreneurial and these are absolutely investing. Make sense, everybody? All right, cool. Money required. We talked a little bit about this, so I'm not going to cover it in ridiculous detail, but typically for these nomad properties, 0% down, that's the USDA, the VA loan, it's all on your sheet, by the way, if you're kind of following along on the top there. So typically 0% down, 3% down for conventional financing, 3.5% down for FHA, and the VA and the FHA are the ones that you can do duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, and single-family homes with, or that 5% down conventional, which is the overwhelming majority of what my clients are doing. They're usually using 5% down, okay? So typically for the money required, you need that down payment, zero, three, three and a half, or 5% down, plus you need any deferred down payment. Here's what I mean by deferred down payment. So you need to come up with the zero, three, three and a half, five percent down immediately when you purchase. But sometimes when you buy a property with 0% down, or 3% down, or 3.5% down, or 5% down, you're gonna have negative cash flow. If you had put 20, 25, 30% down, you wouldn't have negative cash flow. So you could choose to put more down and not have negative cash flow. Or you could choose to put less down and have negative cash flow. So what is that that negative cash flow really? It's deferred down payment. It's the money you're paying monthly instead of coming up with an extra 60, 70, $80,000. So are you okay with, $200 a month negative or $500 a month negative instead of $60,000. And the $200 a month negative may be for a year, two years, three years. So the idea is that instead of coming up with the $60,000 more for down payment to have it have break-even or positive cash flow, you could say, I'm willing to pay this $200 a month because I only needed to come up with 3% down or 0% down or 5% down or 3.5% down in order to acquire this property. So for money required, you need the initial down payment, 0, 3, 3.5, 5%, plus any deferred down payment aka negative cash flow plus reserves right you're not going to do this kind of this kind of real estate investing without having adequate reserves all right so those are the three sources of money that you need to do these types of deals you might also see less frequently when you're doing nomad by proxy when when you're the one moving in but someone else is providing the down payment so you might actually be the one moving into the property, but your parents are doing the down payment for you. Or you're the grandparents, and your kids are providing the down payment for you. So you might not need that money. You might use a lease option, non-refundable option fee, deposits on properties, that you're moving out of as the down payments for purchasing the next property with Nomad with Lease Option Exits. We talked about that before. You get the option fee after the year for that person to become a tenant buyer move into the property with the right to buy it from you. And that option fee is usually non-refundable. It's negotiable, but it's usually non-refundable. And so you get to use that without having to worry about having to come up with it again. And it gets, in most cases, it is applied as a down payment toward their purchase, okay? So talk to your lender about how to structure that correctly for you. But when you're doing these things as far as money required, you may not need the down payment if you're using the option fee from the tenant buyer to provide your down payment for the next one. Although it's much easier if you have the down payment and you just get reimbursed, right? just a logistics, mechanical way of it works. If you've got the 5% sitting around, knowing that after you close, you're gonna get that back, a lot easier to structure than having to get it in your hands before the tenant buyer moves in, before you actually close in the loan, because what do you do? Do you go under contract when you don't have that in your hand? That's kind of iffy, right? I mean, you risk your earnest money. It's a little harder to structure that way. You can, but it's harder. Uh, Or rebate on down payments with that ultimate real estate agent retirement plan. Instead of having to come up 5% down, you come up with the 5%, but you immediately get 3% back. Or putting more down or buying all cash. So you don't have to do 5%. Most of the time we do because we want to have good reserves and use that money for additional down payments elsewhere or additional investments elsewhere. But you could decide to put 20% down, move into the property, and do Nomad that way. Just most people are not. Or if you want to buy all cash, you could do that too. There's another little variation here. For Nomad to short-term rentals, if you're doing that vacation rental thing, technically you could do a vacation home, it helps if it's, I think it's probably required actually, that it's in another geographic location for that second home and for those you put 10% down. So you can get another vacation home and wherever you want to vacation, you vacation in it you know, a couple weekends a year and then you rent it out short-term rental for the rest of the time. So you could do that also, usually in parallel for that second home. Any questions on these? Credit required. So this is traditional owner-occupant financing. you got to qualify for an owner-occupant loan. So you must, I, I, I think I hit this home. Did I, did I not cover this? You must move into the property. You're committing loan fraud. Is there anyone confused about that? you got to move into the property. Otherwise, it's loan fraud. So, and if you're doing Nomad by Proxy, somebody has to move into the property. And don't think, I'm going to fix this. James doesn't know about this. No, James has looked at this for a long time. <laughs> He has not found a way around it. If you think you found a way around it, you can try to reach out to me and tell me. But I'm going to tell you it's probably loan fraud. Okay? So you got to move into the property you're committing loan fraud. Usually you're required to live there for a year based on a document that you sign at and closing and to you get your loan. Now there are exceptions to this. You get divorced, I think that's an exception. If you get transferred for work, I think that's an exception. But there are not that many exceptions to this. So, My what? Calls it a life-changing. Okay. So uh, for the microphone. Um, Nick says his lender calls it a life-changing event. That is one of the ways to get out of it. You can't just say, I don't like my house anymore. (laughs) But hey, you have a kid, get rid of a kid, get a wife, husband, get rid of a wife or husband. I think those are life-changing events. So those could be kind of characteristics for you to be able to do it more than once. Typical credit score you need is 620, although it varies a little bit for different loan programs. The better your credit score, probably the better your interest rate's going to be, except for FHA, which I think is the same no matter what. Um, And the cheaper your PMI is going to be. There are some exceptions. You can go down to 580. I think FHA and VA allow you to go down a little bit lower than than 620. Um, I already talked about that. Less common situations if you're buying without a loan, all cash. Obviously, a credit score is not required for doing that. And then if you're Nomad by proxy where someone else is getting the loan, you may not need to qualify yourself. And then I just made a note on here, credit score requirements can change. So don't go to your lender six months from now and say, James on this recording said that I can get a loan for 620. That's the loan I want. And he told me I can get 5.5%. I'm not telling you that. Go talk to your lender, find out what the then current credit score requirements are and the then current interest rates and the then current down payment requirements are. I'm not guaranteeing that you can go get loans for these things. Okay, skills required. So what, do you need in what skills do you need in order to do Nomad? You know, Nomad's a weird one because it's sort of like very similar to buy and hold in a lot of ways. But there are other investing strategies where you need a lot more or a lot different skills in order to do those. But for Nomading, the primary skills are you need to analyze deals. You need to make sure that this is gonna be a good rental once you move out. You need to find cash flowing deals. You need to find a property that makes sense for you to buy. You don't wanna just buy anything. And I think that's probably one of the bigger mistakes is people buy properties that they, they primarily, bless you, that you primarily want to live in, but that may not make the best rentals. I think there's a little wiggle room there, but you don't go buy your dream house that would never make a good rental just because you can. Okay, So you need to find decent cash flowing deals. Um, another skill is acquisition financing, getting your owner-occupant loan, understanding how that works. That's a skill you need. And then property management. Once you convert it to a rental, you need to be able to manage the property. So property management is another skill. Now, the skills of property management can vary depending on which strategy you're doing. If you're doing. If you're managing them yourself, that's one strategy. If you're hiring a property manager or a company, that's a different strategy, right? You need the skills of managing a person then or, or a company or a team versus the skills of actually finding tenants, screening tenants, evaluating tenants, lease presentation, ceremony, you know, all that stuff, and then kind of like property management, overseeing repairs and all that and turns and those things. They're very different skill sets depending on which one you want to do. And then the third version of the skills of property management is is doing short-term rentals. Doing short-term rentals is different than regular property management. It's also different than hiring and managing a property manager. So just realize that they can be different flavors of what property management means. And then additional skills may be required for variations like lease options. Understanding that lease options require some additional levels of education and expertise. You need to understand what they are, how they work, paperwork, how your attorney recommends you do them, so on and so forth. Okay, stability. So this was a, um, this was a um, email I got probably like, I don't know, three months ago, six months ago now. And it was a guy that does the Farnham Street blog whose name escapes me. And I probably should have looked it up because I forgot it last week too. Um, but he basically sent out this, this blog post in an email. And it was about this idea of um, active versus passive stability. And the, the, the basic concept is something is considered passive if you do it and then you don't have to do anything to it anymore it's sort of like it'll take care of itself but then there's this idea of active stability where you actually have to keep doing something to something or it'll blow up or destroy you or kill you or whatever it is or it'll kind of eat up you know your investment or do poorly for you and so real estate on a whole is very active right if you if you don't do anything with your property even if it's vacant land if you don't pay your taxes on it they're going to come and they're going to take the property right they're going to do your foreclosure they'll have tax lien or tax deed sale um and you'll you'll lose the property so it's very active But even within the active part of it, there's some variations. For example, if you go get a 30-year amortizing loan, that's more passive than getting a interest-only loan that has a balloon. If you don't really do anything with the loan, over 30 years, that thing will pay off. You're just making the payments every month, that'll pay off. Whereas with an interest-only loan with a balloon, you might make payments for 10 years, but at 10 years, you got to take an action. Because there's a balloon that says the balance is due at 10 years. So if you don't do a refinance or sell the property, you're going to have a real problem. And so can you see that doing an interest-only loan with a balloon is more active than a 30-year amortizing loan that is more passive? Even though both of them are really active, you got to do stuff with them, right? So I start, started thinking about this idea of stability in real estate investing. So even more active than passive, or fixer-upper nomads, got to do the work, got to get in the property, got to do everything you need to do there. Um, nomad to short-term rental, got to kind of manage the short-term rentals or manage a manager doing that. And then nomad with those lease option exits, that is more active than a traditional nomad and just rent it out long-term. Okay, So those are the more active versions of this. And then I have a little thing over here of just about like the difference between active and passive, you can read through that if you want to. Any other questions? Sweet. Am I going too fast? Okay, good. I'm going to take a drink though. Scalability. Okay. So, what if you really wanted to do Nomad 10 times in the first year? Hard to do, right? Because you got to move into the property. We got that year long commitment we got for the lender. So, Nomad is often limited to one per year. From that perspective, it is much harder to scale. There's a slower acquisition speed for you, you get slowed down. Some would argue that's good, right? You're kind of like dollar value averaging or dollar cost averaging, depending on how you look at it and what you're kind of like squinting, kind of convert it from a stock kind of term to a real estate term. But you're buying one unit per year, regardless of what the price is doing. So you're buying like over regular intervals. The market's down, you get a little better deal. Markets up, you pay a little bit more, but the properties you purchased previously are also up too, presumably. So you could increase your speed, your ability to scale. Uh, With Nomad by Proxy, you could have someone else move in. You got three kids, you could do three a year now, right? You got two sets of grandparents, you want them to move near you? Great, you can now do two a year. Nomad to short-term rental, so with 10% down, you might be able to do a second vacation home in parallel to this strategy, right? So as far as scalability goes, you could move into one yourself where you live in, and then maybe you buy a second vacation home every year in a new location. Um, And then you could put non-owner occupant, regular investor, not moving into the property, a strategy like traditional buy and hold in parallel. So you buy one Nomad that year, and you've got enough for 20% down payment. You buy a 20% down payment non-owner occupant, you could be doing those at the same time. So from a scalability perspective, though, there is something working in your favor with Nomad, and that is, it is one-fourth the down payment required for traditional buy and hold. Instead of having to save up 20% down, you only need to save up 5% down. So from that perspective, it's even more scalable than traditional buy and hold is. You know, it's somewhere between a third, if you're doing the 15% down, non-owner-occupant loans. Most people are probably doing the 20 or 25. So in that way, it's you know four times as As scalable for the same down payment you need to buy one 20% down rental, you could buy four nomads. It takes you longer time to do it, but you can actually do it faster in the the form of down payment. So if you've got great savings rate, maybe you don't need to worry about that as much, but if you're slow on your savings rate, this could actually be a way to speed things up. Also, 5% down payments, the owner-occupant ones typically have better interest rates. So from that way, it helps you as well. Any questions on scalability? Cool. Risk exposure. So I would consider Nomad to be a medium risk strategy. I don't think it's a low risk strategy, and I don't think it's a high risk strategy, because there are things that are riskier, and there are things that are less risky. But I would consider this to be a medium risk strategy. And so here are some of the risks you have when you do Nomad. You have what I call amplified returns. Because you're putting less down, sometimes as little as zero, plus some closing costs and stuff like that, sometimes as little as zero down, your returns get amplified. If things are going well, they get amplified positively. You know, if you make $12,000 in appreciation in one year on a very little or zero down investment, your returns look amazing, right? You put $1,000 into the deal, you make $12,000. That's like crazy, crazy good. However, what if property values went down that year? Well, they get amplified in the negative direction as well. So if you have a loss, they get amplified negatively. If you have a gain, they get amplified positively because your down payment is so much smaller. Um, Another risk is increased likelihood of negative cash flow. right? If you're only putting 5% down or you're putting 0% down, your chances of having negative cash flow are greater than if you put 20% down or 25% down. So I think that is an additional risk that you have. Now remember that negative cash flow is really a deferred down payment. So you could argue that it's less risky because you don't have to put the full $60,000 out all at once. You can put out $200 a month and keep a really big buffer in reserves instead. right? So in that way, it seems a little less risky, but it is a risk that you have this uh, probably negative cash flow. Um, you could have a price decline during ownership. Value, property values do not always go up. Sometimes property values go down. I mean, I have to say it because otherwise people say, oh, James told me it always goes up 3% a year. What's going on here? So price declines can happen during ownership, and rent declines can happen. They're not as common as well, but you can see soft rental markets. If vacancy rates are really far up there and you want to get your property rented, you might have to drop rent. Just because you got it last year doesn't mean you'll get it this year. So you could see rent declines during ownership, and your credit is at risk. If you're signing on these loans and something really goes wrong and you're unable to make those payments, you could get a foreclosure. And then finally, you have all the typical tenants slash property management risks. So tenants slipping and falling, you know, suing you for you know discrimination—all those typical risks that you have of property management. Those are also included when you do the nomad strategy. Now, as far as short-term rentals go, you can argue that there is slightly more risk with short-term rentals, vacation rentals. You, know, you have more people in and out of the property, more chances for slip and fall, less familiarity. You know, there's all sorts of like additional, like subtle, additional risks there. But You also have additional income coming in, presumably, from doing a short-term rental. Otherwise, why would you do it? Why wouldn't you just do a long-term rental? But you're getting this extra income. So I think that sort of offsets some of these additional risks that you might have. So it's I don't know, maybe it's a little bit more neutral, but you also have an unusual risk with short-term rentals. And that is the risk of kind of like um, HOA, or city, or county, or local governments, or even insurance companies Changing their policies such that the property you were once using as a short-term rental can no longer be used as a short-term rental. So I think that's an additional risk that you're less likely to see with long-term, year-long leases, buy-and-hold type rentals. Any questions on risk exposure? Is this helpful for you guys? Kind of seeing it's all broken out this way. Are you seeing the form of those that came? Who came last week? Just you, right? Are you seeing the parallels of how this works now? That's the idea. I try. All right, so profit speed. How quickly and what magnitude of profits do you see? So how quickly do you make money and what size of money do you make at what interval? So if you guys have seen this before, this is my return quadrant. The return quadrant shows you the four different areas of return you get by having a rental property plus reserves. So on the left-hand side is cash later appreciation and debt pay down. It's money that you're seeing in your return, but you're gonna have a hard time accessing until you either sell the property or you do a cash out refinance. So the property values tend to go up over time and you tend to pay your loans down over time. That usually increases your equity in your property and you can access equity by selling the property or doing some type of cash out refinance. Those are the two primary ways. There are other ways, but its un- they're more unusual. And then on the right hand side is your cash now stuff. That's cash flow and the tax benefits benefits you get by owning rental property, and I'm specifically talking about cash flow from depreciation. Cash flow from depreciation is you take the amount of, when you own rental properties, the government allows you to depreciate the property, um, usually over 27 and a half years for residential properties. So imagine you bought a rental property, And uh, when you kind of like do your math based on what you pay for the property, you subtract out the cost of the land because you cannot depreciate land. You can only depreciate the building. But if you imagine for a minute that when you figure out your depreciation, you're able to depreciate maybe $10,000 a year, that's gross depreciation. That's the amount that you could take in gross depreciation. And then I'm not an accountant. Go talk to your own accountant, but this is my layman's version. And you cannot use this version on your tax returns. But this is basically how it works. If you make $100,000 a year and you have $10,000 in gross depreciation by owning a rental property, then you're only paying taxes not on the $100,000, you're paying taxes on the $90,000. So what you really end up doing is you save $10,000 of taxable income. So if you take that $10,000 in taxable income and you multiply it by your effective tax rate, which is a conservative way to look at it, then that is the amount you have in cash flow from depreciation. That's the amount you did not need to pay in in taxes at the end of the year or the amount that you could take by adjusting your exemptions on your job income and take them with each paycheck, okay? So let's say your tax rate was 20%, you have $10,000 in gross depreciation, you multiply 20% times the 10,000, you now have $2,000 a year that you're getting in cash flow from depreciation, you can either get that back at the end of the year instead of having to pay taxes on it, or you can adjust your exemptions, that's exemptions, right, is that what it's called, Denise? Withholdings, that's it. So whatever it is, on your tax return, where you actually are saying, I don't need to pay in as much tax because I keep getting a refund at the end of the year, so let me pay in less. So you do that, and then on your paycheck now, you see an extra whatever it is, 180 bucks um, or 170 bucks, whatever it works out to be, uh, on, your t- on your paychecks that you now got in. So that could help offset any negative cash flow you might have, or it could add to your cash flow that you're already receiving from the property. But it's through your paycheck and tax savings, not directly from the property. Does that make sense, everybody? And then this total adds them all up and reserves. The, um, the top half of this quadrant, if you've never seen me teach this class before, the top half of the quadrant are the ones that are more speculative. They're more reliant on how the market performs. Do property values go up? That's appreciation. Does, does rent go up or does, is the, kind of the rent holding strong? That's cash flow. So the top half tends to be a little bit more speculative. The bottom half tends to be a little bit more... Uh, contractually or government-implied regulation sort of thing. So you either get the debt pay down based on the loan you have, it's a contractual obligation you have with the lender when you get your loan, or tax benefits, that's part of tax law. So these tend to be a little bit more certain, less speculative in what your returns are. Okay, And then reserves is the amount of money you're getting on the money you have set aside for reserves, whether you're keeping that in a savings account and getting 1%, or you've got it in the stock market and you're getting 8%. The amount of return you're getting from having those reserves set aside so that when you need to access them, we gotta take that into account because we're gonna divide all these other returns by the amount you have in reserves as well to show what your overall return is with the drag of having those reserves. So we gotta give you credit for the money you're earning on the reserves. So that's why it's there too. Okay. So let me make sure I cover what I wanted to cover in here. So with Nomad, you typically can start seeing the appreciation and the debt pay down within 30 days, right? You buy the property, Property values go up. You pay down the loan a little bit. You start seeing those right away. However, cash flow, you don't get till a year. And your your cash flow from depreciation, you don't get till you convert it to a rental. So if you're house hacking, you get a little bit of it now. But really, you're primarily seeing that a year from now when you convert it to a rental. Uh, Rents and security deposits are typically paid in advance. So you do get that a little bit more up front. Uh, Short-term rentals, while you're still living in a property, can speed up your time to receiving cash flow. So you could, on weekends, short-term rental your property as a vacation rental. Lease options, you typically see an upfront option fee. So that's another speedy thing if you're doing a Nomad with lease option. Using a property manager can slightly delay your time to producing cash flow once you convert it to a rental because most property managers are not giving you the security deposits or the cash flow as soon as your tenant moves in. Usually there's like a bookkeeping delay, maybe even a little delay for, you know, having some reserves with them or whatever they're doing. And then usually we think of this as a percentage return of the amount invested. It's either cash on cash, return on investment, or a cap rate. Cap rate is the return you get if you buy, bought the property all cash. And then I talked about cash flow from depreciation. Any questions on profit speed? Cool. Finding deals. How do you find these crazy Nomad deals? Well, the primary way that most people find Nomad deals is through the MLS. The MLS has the largest selection. Um, of properties. And so most of them are finding it through the MLS, the Multiple Listing Service. There are some other ways to find them. Another common way is for sale by owner. And there's really two main groups of for sale by owners. There's the actively marketed, all the for sale by owners that are putting signs in the yard, putting their properties up on Zillow or other websites to advertise that it's actively for sale. Those are the actively marketed for sale by owners. But then there's a whole separate group of for sale by owners that they haven't told anyone their property is really for sale. Those are sort of what I call the hidden for sale by owner group. And you usually find those through either marketing to properties that are not advertised for sale or networking. You're talking to somebody and they say, hey, I'm, I'm considering selling my property. And you're like, oh, I'd like to buy it. And that's considered a hidden for sale by owner because no one knows about them. They're not adver- actively advertising. And then a more unusual way of finding deals is wholesalers. OK. Any questions on finding deals? What are you laughing at? It's so easy? So easy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, I, this is not intended to be a class on finding deals. This is like this is the class on everything nomad. I can't I can't teach a two-hour class on finding deals no, within um, it.
0: Um, so I just have a question. Yeah. I guess it's more for our local market, but yeah. maybe others is that um, rents are a lot slower than the cost of housing right now, and so maybe in that one year we might see some increases, but it seems like right now we would need to have that deferred down payment kind of covered longer term, unless you can find a really good deal. Yeah, I think that's (laughs) true. Also being able to get traditional financing on, if you wanna do the, um, the, like fix it up, that's also a lot harder to do right now too, because a lot of homes are selling for far over their appraisal values when they're depreciated. Just curious if you have any thoughts on that right now. I think that's
1: true. I think okay. what we've seen what over I'm the last correctly? you know I think we've seen over the last you know five years or so, um, maybe even longer, property prices have gone up quite a bit, um, very fast. What's been saving us prior to the last three or four months was that interest rates were also declining as we kind of entered this, and so the sting of property values going up rapidly was kind of softened by lowering interest rates till we finally got to the point where they were at all-time lows. But since then, you know, whatever it was, four months ago, when we started to see interest rates start to significantly climb, and property values have been going up very rapidly over the last X number of years, and rents have been going up, but not quite as fast as property prices have been going up, we've now seen this converging of multiple forces where prices are way up, interest rates are way up, and rents are up, but not quite as much, such that cash flow is not what it was if you were analyzing deals five years ago. Um, Will it get better? I think it's gonna be individual market specific, and I'm, I'm specifically saying it that way because this recording is intended to be for a national audience, but in our local market, I don't know if we're going to see a retracement. I I, I can't say, I could tell you that demand looks really strong. And if you had come into the market stats class, I mean, you guys, you three were at least in the market stats class. Oh, you were there too? Oh, okay. So, you know, with the the market stats class, I, I think the market stats suggested to me that demand was very strong and we might see a slowing of how crazy it's been, but I'm not sure it's going to go drastically in the other direction. I mean, it's possible, I I can't predict the future, my crystal ball is really blurry for me, but I think that we're probably gonna see a slowdown, um, maybe a little bit retracement, but I think that's true. Now, if you think about it though, if you put 20% down and you were able to get, you know, break even cash flow a few years ago, maybe now it's 25% because you see an increase in down payment and an improvement in interest rate, in order to get to that point. Maybe it's even hard to find those. But I think there's still, even in the craziest, amazing markets, there are still exceptional deals out there. You can still find that amazing cash flow property. Um, It's harder. They come along less frequently. And sometimes you need to act very quickly. And sometimes you're taking on, voluntarily taking on some wackiness as part of the deal, right? You're trading a problem that you can deal with, that you're willing to live with in exchange for maybe a little bit improved cash flow or significantly improved cash flow depending on what the deal is. So I I would kind of cover it that way, but I think you're right. I think we're seeing a a suppression in cash flowing properties, but even with you do, what's great about the Nomad model in particular and, and buy and hold in general is you get to lock in economic structures at one point in time. So you acquire the property now at a certain price, you acquire an interest rate now at a certain interest rate and If prices go up from here, you're immune to that risk, right? You you benefit from increased price appreciation. You benefit from rent appreciation now. And you're not hurt by increased interest rates, at least directly. You may be hurt by the market overall by increased interest rates. But for your property that you own, you're not hurt unless you get an arm. Don't do arms. Just get the fixed rate 30-year financing. But you're not really hurt by interest rates going up. And actually, when interest rates do decline because it's a cycle. I mean, things go up and things go down. It may not go back down to all-time lows that we've seen, but you may be able to ratchet down your interest rate at some point in the future where you were locked in at, you know, whatever it was, 6.75 if you got a a non-owner-occupied type loan, and now they come back down to 5%. Well, now you can improve your position five years from now when prices have gone up, uh, rents have gone up, and interest rates have come down a little bit. So you get the benefit of sort of locking in these things. So in my opinion, one of the great benefits of nomad and buy and hold in general is, being able to control this asset, and then you can sort of benefit from when the market goes in your favor, but you're not hurt much by a market going against you, at least if you're holding on. You know, if you're trying to get in and out and the market goes south and you're trying to get out of a fix and flip, that's hard, right? I mean, you, you could actually lose money. But if you're kind of holding a property and we have a, even a, a five year long dip, okay. I mean, if your intention is to hold that for 30 years and pay it off, does it really matter? Probably not, right? So, I don't know. That's how I see it short term. I hope that answers your question. That, that answered? Okay, good. All right, so for analyzing deals, how do you analyze a Nomad deal? You can go download the spreadsheet, realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash spreadsheet. Um, I did a whole class on all the inputs for this, but this is how you do the deal analysis. You put in all the numbers over here. And the one thing I will say about Nomad is, when we analyze a Nomad deal, because you're living in the property for the first year, and then you're converting it to a rental in year two, We just assume that we're analyzing it in year two. So year one becomes year two. It's gonna be off a little bit. You'll pay down a little bit more on the loan. Your appreciation will probably be a little bit better, but don't worry about it. Just kind of run the numbers as if it's all year one. It'll be close enough, okay? Any questions on deal analysis, how to get the spreadsheet? Just go download it from the website. Okay. Market conditions. This is obvious, right? But I have to put it there because there are some strategies where it's not obvious. it's better to do this in a market with good cash flow. It's better to do this in a market that has strong appreciation. It's better to do this in a market that has strong rent appreciation. Uh, it is challenging, more challenging, in markets with significant negative cash flow with reasonable down payments. And in, in some markets, I would say in most markets, I can make anything cash flow, right? You put down 100%, basically don't get a loan on a property, probably gonna cash flow in the overwhelming majority of the markets unless it doesn't cover taxes and insurance on the property maintenance, you know, those types of things. But for a reasonable size down payment, buy and hold 20%, 25% down, if it's gonna have significant negative cash flow there, that makes it much more challenging. And if you're doing Nomad and it's gonna have negative or break even cash flow at 20 or 25% down, it's probably gonna be negative if you have 5% or 3% or 3.5% or 0% down, right? I mean, that's just the math. So that's a challenging market. And then markets with no or negative appreciation and rent appreciation. If you're buying in a market where the property values are still the same as they were 10 years ago, that could potentially hurt you a little bit if you're doing it. Um, Sometimes it's hard to predict. But there are some markets that people have a mass exodus where there's a decrease in population and there's less demand for the properties over time. And I think that's partially what hurts uh, appreciation and rent appreciation. Any questions on market conditions? Sweet. Accessibility, availability. So how plentiful are these deals? In many markets, there are plentiful deals you can select from the MLS. I would consider our market to be a market where you can find nomad properties inside the MLS. You do not need to get crazy and creative to find nomad properties here in Northern Colorado. And I think that's true in most markets. In some markets, you're sifting and sorting for the top deals where these are markets where everything cash flows. Everything's 10% cash on cash, and now you're trying to find the best property, where you're like, okay, 10% cash on cash is no longer my criteria. Now it's 20% cash on cash, or whatever it is. So now you're really sifting and sorting for the best deals instead of just any deal that will work. Um, in our marketplace, we're, we're usually limited in the deals that we can get to work with these numbers, so it's not like you're, you've got 95% of the MLS that you can go ahead and just anyone will do it's you're already looking at that top 5% just to find ones that are going to be close enough. And then you're having to select of those. Uh, In other markets, it might be challenging to find positive cash flowing properties, especially with smaller down payments. I think I'd classify our market as that. Um, Nick, if you're willing to say are are most of your properties that you do 5% down, are they cash flowing off the bat? Yeah, exactly. So um, it's really he said no, by the way, for the recording. It's really, really hard to find positive cash flowing properties in the majority of cases, you're gonna be negative, And you're really just doing that deferred down payment. Interest rates may be a significant factor when properties whether properties will cash flow or not, as interest rates go up, it makes it harder and harder to cash flow. owner occupant rates can help over traditional buy and hold. If you're doing non owner occupant financing, those rates tend to be much higher. Look at the handout that's included loan type mortgage insurance comparisons, and it shows you the non-owner occupant ones, the rates for those, and then the owner occupant ones that show you kind of what the the benefits are there. It's pretty significant. And then of course, if you're doing short term vacation rentals, make sure that you can do a vacation rental in that property at least when you buy it. It may change over time, but at least when you buy it, try to make sure that you can do it um, before you purchase the property or go under contract. Okay. Using retirement accounts. So in some real estate investing strategies, you can use your retirement accounts, self-directed IRA, self-directed 401k in order to do investing. Since you're doing owner occupants for Nomad, you cannot use your self-directed IRA, self-directed 401k. Um, I think it's called self-dealing or something like that where you're unable. Is that that the term you guys know? Self-dealing if you're actually trying to do owner occupant stuff with it. Um, And you'd be restricted if you were trying to do stuff and you're lineal ancestry sort of thing, you know, doing it for your parents or your kids, Um, you still cannot do self-directed IRA and deal with direct lineal bloodline sort of family relations. So you have to do it with, I don't know, somebody who is outside of that relationship. Go talk to a specialist in doing self-directed IRAs or 401ks if you want details on that. Or maybe I'll do a class on it at some point. All right, any questions on this? Sweet. Quantitative analysis. Okay, so this was the first whatever it was. I can't even do math now. Uh, first 5 eighths of the uh, class was all about sort of like a qualitative analysis showing you like how, to, how the different characteristics of this as a real estate investing strategy are, and I kind of measured some different things to show you this is how it is. The second half, I'm really going to focus, second half, second 3 eighths. Um, I'm going to focus primarily on more of a quantitative study of like how does this strategy compare if we're doing buy and hold. With my thinking being that as I do different strategies over different classes over different you know kind of nights and stuff like that, I will I will kind of reference back the other ones that we did to show how those did numerically and then how does that compare to the strategies that we've already covered. So you'll be able to see tonight at least buy and hold to nomad, and then as I move forward, I'll look back at. Buy and hold and Nomad and whatever we're doing that night to kind of give you a comparison. So that was my thinking. We'll see how it goes because it's already getting overwhelming with just the buy and hold comparison, but that's my intention as of right now. So here it is. How well does Nomad perform toward achieving financial independence? That's primarily what I'm looking to measure. Um, And and as I go through these, one of the things I realized very quickly as I went through them, because I was making decisions as to, well, I'm not going to show 30 examples of this one. Uh, I could show 30 examples of this strategy versus 30 examples of this strategy. I'm just sort of showing one or two of each kind of group. But each individual sub-variation of Nomad could literally be its own full-day seminar, not even just one class. It could be like a full day of, let's go over all the different ways that Nomad with Lease Option could work and how, the, how that impacts your ability to achieve financial independence and how they compare and risk. And there's like, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. So. I have a lot of stuff I can cover over the future. So there will probably be their own eventual full classes on each, and there probably are at least a full class or several classes on them. It is, and this is kind of like a warning to you, it's naive to generalize these results. Okay, So if you go and say, oh, James said, and I'm making this up because I don't remember, James said lease option is the best strategy I should do, so I'm always going to do lease options in every situation and he says Nomad by Proxy is the second worst, so I should never do that one. Oh, that would, be really, that would be bad for you because this was a very specific situation for a very specific group of people with very specific amount of money they've got coming in and you know, property prices and appreciation and their rent, to, you know, their rent to price ratios. Like all those things will come into play, and I think I talk about this at the very, very end, but you can't just assume that because I told you X was the best, that X will always be the best in all situations for all people, including you, okay? But I'm gonna show you like a very specific situation and how it plays out for them. All right, so for quantitative analysis, we're gonna do Nomad. We're gonna do 5% down payment with PMI. For Nomad to short-term rentals, um, I've done significantly higher income. I think I increased the income you're getting on rent by 25%, and then significantly higher expenses. I changed maintenance from 10% to 20%. Um, in many cases, there's usually more work involved in that one as well. So part of the increased income that you're getting from doing short term rentals is your labor, right? It's like you need to figure out what your dollar per hour is in addition to the extra income you're earning by the kind of characteristics of that. Um, then I'll do fix your upper no man by proxy, man with house hacking, man with lease option, and the ultimate real estate agent retirement plan. All the ones we covered, I'm going to do examples of, okay? So first I need to tell you how I define financial independence because I think that's important for you to know what I'm measuring. So financial independence for me in this definition and what we're doing tonight, and I think it's a good general one, but it is when your investments provide your minimum target monthly income in retirement, what some people might call lean fire or just regular fire. It's when your investments provide you enough money coming in where you can live off of those things without doing additional work. You may choose to do additional work, but you could actually stop working. It consists of three things. Thing number one, any passive income you have coming in from social security, pensions, or annuities. Those are your three sources of passive income. If you could think of another one, let me know. It also consists of, number two, any net cash flow after all expenses from rentals. So net expenses after vacancy, property management, maintenance, taxes, insurance, mortgage, principal and interest, like all of those things that get included in there has to be net cash flow after all of those. And then finally, number three, whatever yearly safe withdrawal rate you believe is correct times the amount you have invested in stocks or bonds or something else. You cannot double dip and count equity times your safe withdrawal rate. That's already being counted in your cash flow. You can't count the amount you have in your pension if you're already counting that somewhere else. This is additional money that you have invested most of the time in stocks or bonds, but it can be anything else, okay? And that's the return you get on those. So it's three things, that passive income, from Social Security, pensions and annuities, net cash flow from rentals, and then your yearly safe withdrawal rate on any invested assets, okay? Those are when the sum of all three of those, when those exceed your minimum target monthly income in retirement, you are then, you meet the definition of being financially independent. That's my definition for tonight. Any questions on that? Cool. So all of these assumptions are changeable. Um, I will put the links to the actual scenarios. You can copy them into your own account. And you could say, oh, I'm, I'm not like this person. I make x, x amount more or x amount less or my properties are this or that or whatever. All of these things, all these assumptions are changeable. But this is what the, the, the situation is. So I picked an arbitrary couple. They're married. They're both 21 years old. They recently graduated from college, and they're working in a technology department of a large healthcare business. Uh, They have a total of $10,000 saved up between the both of them. It's not not each. It's combined. They earn a total of $72,000 per year combined, not each. They each, another way of saying this is they each earn $18 per hour times 2,000 hours per year worked equals $36,000 per year each that they make. They're saving about $1,000 per month before they buy any houses. If they were to buy a house, it would be less because their cost of of renting is lower than the cost to buy, okay? But right now, if they're renting, they're saving $1,000 per month. They are obsessed with achieving financial independence so they can retire early. They wanna find their best path to financial independence together. For the modeling, they're both taking Social Security at age 67. And I incorrectly modeled it such that they worked through 67, so the amount they collect in Social Security at age 67 assumes they work through that full-time period. Technically, if they retire early and they stop working, Social Security will be a little bit lower for them. But then they would have already had enough financial independence from their other assets where it shouldn't matter. That's why I was able to justify it to myself to let it go. So Social Security estimated based on them working until age 67. So I said that. Any questions on this? Cool. So I highlighted on your loan type mortgage insurance comparison sheet the different owner occupant loans and the interest rates so we didn't use fha or usda or va or three percent down either of those or the five percent down lender paid this is why it could be an entire class or an entire day just on each one we could look at different loan combinations right we could do They got a VA loan first with a duplex, then they got a FHA loan with a triplex, then they did 5% down, or maybe they did 3% down. So, I mean, it could take a day just to go through all these variations, or you guys do it on your own. What I did is I said, okay, they're doing 5% down with monthly mortgage insurance at 5.5. That's what I use for that, okay? Any questions on loan? Okay, these are more changeable scenario assumptions. I said, let's model this for 60 years, 720 months. Um, I went and I looked up what their uh, like, um, kind of like generic effective income tax rate would be for earning that $72,000 a year. 17.85% is what their effective income tax rate would be for that. I assumed it's a 3% inflation rate for the entire period. You know, we're seeing a higher than inflation right now. Maybe it'll be lower in the future. Maybe it'll be 3%, who knows? Uh, The the Fed's stated ideal inflation rate is 2%, for those that know. Uh, We assume 5.5% mortgage interest rate, owner-occupant rate with 5% down. I assume they're using a 4% yearly safe withdrawal rate, so any extra money they have invested in the stock market, I'm using 4% safe withdrawal rate to see if that contributes to them achieving financial independence. So they'll have their rental property income from the stuff they're doing with rentals, but any extra money they have set aside, we can use that towards seeing if they qualify for being financially independent. Uh, They need $5,000 minimum target monthly income in retirement in today's dollars. That does adjust up with inflation over time. So 10 years from now, it's not $5,000, it's whatever it is, 6,000 and change. I'm guessing, I don't know if that's the exact number, but it goes up over time. So the kind of like hurdle, the threshold for them to be considered financially independent is getting harder and harder the longer they wait. Another way of saying that, okay? And why did I use $5,000? They make $6,000 a month, six times 12 is 72, right? So why am I using $5,000 here for a minimum target? Because they're saving $1,000 a month. So this is sort of like the money that they're living on. When they're finally financially independent and they're retired, they don't have to save that $1,000 anymore. Okay, so we're saying they only need $5,000 to be considered financially independent. And just arbitrarily, I said that $10,000 is their ideal lifestyle. So we'll see, maybe not tonight, but we'll see in, in other things that I do when they achieve $10,000 as an ideal target monthly income retirement as another chart. Any questions on these assumptions? Sweet. Take a drink. All right. Ooh, small small fonts. Okay, so these are the property assumptions. These are the details that I use for the property. So I'm assuming it's a $375,000 property. It is not based on Northern Colorado. It's a generic sort of like mm, skewed a little higher than average, average property for the US. So 375 property value purchase price, and it goes up at a rate of 3% a year, the same rate as inflation. Uh, For a fixer upper nomad, for the one when I do fixer upper, they're buying it at a 10% discount. That's what my assumption was. Okay. I'm assuming they put a 5% down payment, so it's 5% of purchase price for down payment. There is PMI. For the fixer upper, I'm saying they need to spend, bless you, I'm I'm saying they need to spend $12,000 in fix up money as well as the down payment and any closing costs in order to fix that property up and capture the 10%. So it's not like they got 10% profit. They got a 10% discount, then they had to put 12K up in order to capture the rest of it, okay? um for lease option i'm using the option fee for paying the down payment on the second property on so it does not require a five percent down payment for subsequent ones after the first one they got to save up for the first one now and then for the ultimate real estate agent retirement plan i'm assuming they're getting a three percent rebate as a commission everyone knows that real estate commissions are not fixed they are negotiated and that three percent is arbitrary and i picked it i'm not saying that that's what you will always get could be higher could be lower it's whatever you negotiate Uh, I'm also saying 1% of the purchase price and closing costs at the time of purchase. There are no seller concessions. So the seller is not contributing towards your closing costs in any way. The interest rate is 5.5 for the 5% down plus PMI. It's a 360 month mortgage term, 30 year loan. Rent on this property is $2,600 per month, but rent increases at a rate of 3% per year as well. So rent keeps pace with inflation. You could argue that you might be able to do better with lease options, so I didn't do this, but you could say, look, I'm allowing these guys to buy the property, You know, why would I charge them the same rent that I would charge someone who is doing a lease with an option to buy? I probably could get a small premium for doing that. I didn't do it in this case, so lease option is handicapped a little bit. And then for house hackers, if you're renting out one bedroom, I'm assuming you're getting $650 a month for that bedroom. If you're renting out two, that's two times 650 or $1,300. If you're renting out three, I assumed it's 650 for all three. That's 1950 if I did my math right. So while your owner occupying the properties, you are collecting that on one property. Once you convert it to a regular rental, it's the $2,600 a month. 3% of the monthly income is the assumed vacancy rate. So that's what I assume for vacancy. That's if you're, they're managing their properties well. They're starting 60 to 90 days ahead of time. They're not letting the properties go vacant before they start marketing. They're really doing a good job managing their properties. Uh, 10% of the monthly income is the assumed maintenance rate. So that's what we're setting aside for maintenance. And then 0.75% of the value of the property is assumed property taxes. So property taxes at the start is about 28, 12, 50 per year. And some people in other states are thinking, wow, James, that's really low. And some people are like, wow, that's really high. So we're using a number that I think is defensible. Again, you can copy these to your own account and change all the assumptions. Um, and as the property value goes up, so does that taxes, because it's based on the value of the property each year instead of it being just a fixed number. And then I'm saying 0.4% of the value of the property each year is assumed for the property insurance rate, so based on that initial value of 375, it's about $1,500 per year. And again, people in other states are like, James, that's really low or really high, although I think most people will say that's really low. Uh, this is a residential property, and 15% of the purchase price is considered the value of the land, so you cannot depreciate the value of the land, so that is my assumption for that calculation. And so that's when I'm doing my depreciation calculation, I'm saying that 85% of the purchase price is the depreciable amount. Any questions on my property assumptions? It's going slow so that when I give you the numbers, you're not asking me all the questions about my assumptions. This is why I take the time to do it ahead of time. There's some thought here. Okay, so. This is sort of a review. If you came last week, we did the buy and hold stuff. So this is them if they say, look, I'm not doing any real estate at all. Uh, This is the person's situation. We just covered all the details. This is them investing completely in stocks. No real estate, they're renting. So if they just do all stocks, no real estate, it takes them 482 months in order to be able to be financially independent. And it's all from their stock market accounts and if they hit Social Security from the Social Security. I
0: have a quick question. Uh, do you ins- assume um, their salaries follow inflation, or do you?
1: Keep yes. It? Yes, okay. the salary does increase with inflation, and yep.
0: it's the same as inflation.
1: And expenses. Okay. So their personal expenses and their salary increase with inflation. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Absolutely. So really, they may be saving slightly more than a thousand dollars a month over time, but if you adjust back for inflation, it's actually a thousand dollars in inflated dollars. Yeah. But a
0: lot of jobs don't follow inflation, so that's why it's so Most
1: most do better when you figure that people jump job to job. Yeah. Yeah, I looked at data on that a long time ago. All right, so any questions on this? Cool, that's easy. All right, so now we've added in, they're gonna buy one owner-occupant property. They're just gonna move in, and now they're gonna actually invest in stocks. Now when they move into an owner-occupant property, they actually end up saving less, right? Because the amount that it costs them to buy a property is much higher than the amount that it costs them to rent a property. So in that case, we make an adjustment And they end up saving less. Still, though, works out better. 396 months. And it turns out it's 396 months. I'll kind of jump ahead. I'll steal some thunder for myself. Turns out it's 396 months because that's when they pay off their property. And when you pay off your property, you no longer have to pay the principal and interest part of that payment. And so that actually gets subtracted from the $5,000 they need to earn in order to be considered financially independent. It's now $5,000 minus that principal and interest part, because they don't have a housing expense. They have taxes and insurance and maintenance on the property, but they don't have a principal and interest part, and so they achieve financial independence when that property is free and clear. Does that make sense? Okay. Now this other one is they rent, but they're buying 10, 20% down payment rentals. That takes 370 months for them to be financially independent. So it gets a little bit better if they buy 20% down rentals. Then if they buy 25% down rentals, they're still renting themselves, they can achieve financial independence in 346 months. A little faster. What if they do 15% down rentals? takes a little longer, 370 months. Okay. To rent or buy, should Norman Norma keep renting for $1,800 a month, it increases with inflation, or buy a property with almost $600 a month higher monthly costs? They go from saving about $1,000 per month when renting to about $420 per month when they buy a property to live in. So they significantly decrease their savings amount. Yeah, Nick. Yes, and it does switch over after some point. Yeah, I'm gonna do a whole chart on that for the upcoming podcast. Yep, you're right though. Should they rent or buy? So when nomading, except nomading by proxy, they're moving in and therefore have this reduced savings amount, right? So when they do nomad, they're buying a property to live in, and so they don't, they're not saving $1,000 a month anymore. Now they're saving less, like you know, $420 a month. And as they buy more and more expensive properties, it may even get worse, right? So will it matter? Like, is that gonna really hurt them? We're gonna find out. So now I've said, what if they buy their one owner occupant, then they do 20% down payment rentals? Well, that actually increases to 394 months. What if they buy one owner occupant, then they do 25% down? Same thing, 394 months. Huh, that's weird, the same amount for buying 20% or 25%. What if they do one owner occupant, then they buy 10, 15% down rentals? Huh, that's also 394 months. Why are all three of those 394 months? Well, I told you, it's because that's when they pay off the house that they lived in. So they were getting close, but then once they pay off their house, it just everything goes off. It's like they, they achieve it instantly then. Make sense? So that's what I say here. Basically, all these are really, really similar. That's when they pay off their houses. OK, let's talk about Nomad. So they're going to do 10 Nomad properties. Nine of them will be rentals, the last one they're going to live in. All 5% down. So besides short-term rentals with higher rent and more work, nomading is the fastest strategy to achieve financial independence. It comes in at 320 months. Okay, So 320 months is how long it takes when you nomad. They don't even buy their ninth and 10th property until well after they achieve financial independence, though. So Fixer Upper Nomad, they're buying properties at a 10% discount, so 10% discount is about $37,500, but it costs them $12,000, adjusted up for inflation, so that changes over time. The later it gets, the more expensive it is, to capture that amount. This is not counting any labor you're doing for yourself. All that may be extra. So $37,500 discount minus $12,000 in rehab costs, so you're really capturing about $25,000 in equity when you do this Fixer Upper Nomad model. And that's just an assumption, right? Yours could be better, could be worse. Maybe you get better deals than this. Maybe you get worse deals than this. I had to put a stake in the ground. That's why this could be a whole day class by itself. They also, because they're buying at a you know, discount, $37,500 discount, they get almost $200 per month more in cash flow, right? Because they're borrowing less. They're doing 5% of a 10% discount instead of 5% of the full price. So their cash flow is a little bit better when they do fix upper nomad. They need more money to acquire slash rehab the properties though, which actually delays when they can buy the property because if they were just trying to buy a property as quickly as they could save up just the 5% down payment plus closing costs. Now they need 5% down payment plus $12,000 plus 1% closing costs. It delays when they buy that first property and some subsequent properties as well. Okay. But then they're collecting better cash flow on it, which helps them qualify for future loans. And kind of replenishes their money, but they still need $12,000 in rehab money for the next one, too, because I assume that they're repeating it every time. So, regular NOMAD needs about $22,500 for down payments versus this $32,250 with the rehab costs. And I just broke out the math. The 5% down payment on the discounted purchase price is $16,875. The 1% closing costs is about $33,75 3, and $12K in rehab. That's where this $32,250 comes from. And it delays when they acquire their first property. So any questions on my assumptions? The reveal? So that takes 231 months to achieve financial independence. Before it took 320 for them doing the regular Nomad. Now if you buy a property at a 10% discount and you get that extra cash flow, even though it delays you buying your first one a little bit, maybe even a couple other ones, it's actually faster, 231 months. Part of it's the extra cash flow. Any questions on Fixer up Upper Nomad? Nomad by proxy. So they continue to rent themselves. So they're still saving that $1,000 a month. But now they have somebody nomad on their behalf. So that's interesting. We've assumed that they have more than one proxy, which is a big assumption. Because if you're just thinking, I've got one kid or one friend or one parent or whatever it is who's willing to do this nomad by proxy for me, then this would slow it down. Because I've assumed that they could do it as quickly as they can come up with that 5% down payment. And they've got enough people to do it where they're doing that. I assumed that there was no benefit or compensation to the proxy. Most of the time when you're having someone know by proxy, you're giving them below market rent or ownership in the deal or something else, and I did not assume that in this case, which is a big assumption. And that's why this whole thing could be its own class, right? It could be a whole full day class. They just started paying rent right away. One of the reasons this one does so well is they collect rent right away. So they don't have to wait a year while they're living in the property. They have improved debt to income, which helps them qualify. They're still renting and have income, property, and properties. And then they buy fast, faster than one per year. Because they've got the Nomad by Proxy. So this shows you how quickly they're acquiring properties. This is the number of properties owned. And this is time. The red one is uh, Nomad by Proxy. So you can see that they acquire them very, very quickly. You know, basically by the time they're, I don't know, month 150 or so, they have all 10. Uh, the orange one is when they did Fixer Upper Nomad. So that was a little faster, even though it was slower to start. See that? So they had all those, a little bit, I don't know, around 200 months or so. And then the regular traditional Nomad, it was slow. And I told you, they didn't acquire these last two until after they were financially independent. Because part of it is, they've got to acquire the properties, they've got to make sure they have their DTIs in place, and they've got to make sure they have down payments saved up. So that just shows you their speed. How quickly does Nomad by Proxy do it? 214 months. Financially independent, 214 months for that one. Versus 231 with fixer upper and 320 for traditional Nomad. All right, Uh, so these short-term rental assumptions, and all these assumptions are changeable, but I wanted to make a point that what I use for short-term rentals, I think, I think a lot of people would argue you're really handicapping short-term rentals, James. But this is what I used. So rents will be higher, but fees and expenses on rents will be significantly higher as well. Overall, I've assumed that the net, after all the additional expenses, your rent will be 25% higher. So instead of $2,600 a month, it's 3,150. Additionally, maintenance goes from 10% of 2,600 to 20% of 3,150. So it goes from $260 a month for maintenance to $630 a month for maintenance. And you may say, James, that's not high enough, or James, that's too low, or James, that's too high. I don't know. Whatever you want to say. But the reason I made a separate slide is, you want to change my assumptions, please do. Okay. So the increase, in my opinion, is modest, but it still impacts achieving financial independence. It could be higher or lower. I don't know. I've just sort of made up numbers. I'm not an expert in short-term rentals. All right, so the nomad to short term rental is 154 months to financial independence. Yeah, exactly, right? So you go from 320 months for the traditional model all the way down to 154 months for achieving financial independence with nomad for, to short term rental. Retire at, Retire at 33, is that what figured out? Retire at 33. You know, realize too that this assumes you keep doing that model after financial independence too, right? Because you're basically assuming you're continuing to get that. We could model it and say, once you achieve financial independence, let's go ahead and go to long-term rentals to make this more passive and see how that looks. Or once you get to the point where your long-term rentals would support you at 100% of your minimum target monthly income retirement, then convert it back to long-term rentals and reduce the workload. But otherwise, you're being active, right? This is more like a part entrepreneur business for that. Okay. No man with house hacking, so essentially the same as getting a side hustle. I want to stop and make a point about this. If you get a roommate and you're collecting $650 a month from that roommate, mathematically, it's the same as you getting a $650 a month extra job. Right? You're just getting extra money coming in. It counts as a side income. So when I model it, I literally model it as an extra income. That you're getting $650 a month as an extra income source. That's how I plug it in. So I just have the income starting at month 33, which is when they buy their first property. Takes them a while to get to the point where they can afford the first property, 33 months. So I have it start at 33. And I ran three different scenarios, with one roommate, with two roommates, and with three roommates, just to see how the difference worked out. So with one roommate, it's an extra $650 per month. With two, it's $1,300. With three, it's $1,950. And then once the year is up, or once they buy their next property and they move out, then they bring these roommates with them, in theory, and they convert the last one to a regular rental getting $2,600 a month. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay. So if you get one house hack roommate, it's 263 months to financial independence. If you get two house hack roommates, it's 238 months. If you get three house hack roommates, it's 214 months. And in this case, once you achieve financial independence, I jettison your roommates. You no longer need them. You just keep living in the house from there on, right? Because once you get there, the income that you were getting from that doesn't count anymore anyway. So I just said, let's just get rid of it, okay? So you have enough financial independence income sources from the rentals and any money you have in the stock market and whatever else to support your minimum target monthly income retirement without the extra roommates in house hacking modeling, okay? Any questions on this? This is nice to see, kind of like the comparison. All right. So I just want to remind everyone what this deal is. So traditional Nomad, you buy a home as an owner-occupant, you live there for a year, then you buy a new home, you convert the previous to a rental and you repeat the process until you reach your financial goals as many times as you want. With Nomad with lease option exit, you buy a home as an owner-occupant. That's the same. You live there for a year. That's the same. You buy a new home. That's the same. Then you convert the previous to a lease option tenant buyer. That's different. And you replace sold properties with new properties and you repeat the process, okay? So lease option is different than traditional Nomad because you're putting tenant buyers in there and then any ones you sell, you take any proceeds you have, and you're in, at least in one of the variations, you're buying replacement properties with 20% down or 25% down. All right, so here's the challenge with this. If we run this and we don't buy replacement properties, they sell their properties to tenant buyers and you don't really acquire a bunch of properties, right? You, you basically get one, And then you live there until you buy the next one, and then three or four, I think it's three years later, you sell it off, so you go back down, and then you can buy another one, then you can do this, and it keeps repeating, and you never really get to the point where you own as many properties as you did with other traditional models. Because every time you convert it to a rental, in this case a tenant buyer rent to own, you actually are selling the properties after a period of time. So it's bad in that way. So in the past, I often taught this combined with buying 20 or 25% down payment properties instead of having to wait for all the Nomad ones, right? So this is how they compare. This is regular, what I just showed you over here. This is the same one versus if you add buying 20% down payment rentals, you end up getting up here and you end up having properties. But there's some buying and selling going on here throughout these transactions, right? So you eventually get to that point where you do that. Yeah, I should do a whole new class on this. I mean, this should be a full-day seminar, honestly. It's complicated. There's a lot of stuff going on. So anyway, when you do those, though, buying 10 properties with lease option exits where you're not replacing them with 20% down payment properties, it takes 379 months. It's one of the worst ones. If you do it where you put 5% down, and then when you come up with a 20% down payment, you can also buy those in parallel, it's 441 months. It's even worse. Okay. Now, what's, what's the problem you're solving by doing lease options, though? Having to come up with down payments, right? Because this is a strategy where you don't need to save the down payments anymore. You use lease options to do it. You need to save the first one, but then after that, you're kind of using other things. And again, if we did different assumptions, this could win. This could be the best strategy based on the assumptions we use. OK. The ultimate real estate agent retirement plan, you're nomading with a real estate license. You're collecting a commission on the property you buy to Nomad into. In our modeling, they essentially get an instant 3% commission, meaning instead of 5% down, they're really paying net 2% down plus closing costs. So the way to think about it is they come up with 5%, and then they immediately get rebated back the rest. You know, 3% of that. Uh, Not 3% of that, but 3% of the purchase price, so 60%. Uh, If their limitation was down payment, if that was what was holding them back, this, this helps a lot, right? Not having to put up as much, but it doesn't solve all problems. It doesn't solve debt to income. So I plan to teach a whole course on this strategy for those that are interested. If you guys are like, hey, I want to do this whole thing, I probably will do like a, I don't know, some type of significant course. So if you do that, though, it's 310 months to do that. And all it is is the same as traditional nomad, except you have a real estate license. So that's the difference. So, the the main real estate license the main one where you didn't have a real estate license was 320 months this saves you about a year 10 months just doing it that way okay any questions on that nice and then this is all the buy and hold ones from last week with all of the nomad stuff from tonight all on one chart so that you can see a comparative where they are and you could see in general Bless you. Nomad is better, right? Can you see that? If you're, if you're willing to nomad, you can save all this time. And I agree. I think Muneer was the one who said at the beginning, no one wants to move, right? Who wants to go and move into properties? But you know, you make a compelling enough financial argument. You're like, is moving worth 50 grand? Or is moving worth 10 years of not working? You know, You start getting to these points where you need to make that decision for yourself. Is a really sucky weekend worth you know, stop and working 10 years from now, you know, 10 years earlier than you would. And and only you can make that decision. But that's how I think what's
0: about it. What's the maximum number of properties they own? Um, what's the number of, pro- maximum number of properties they own? Or like how, what, in those cases, I got lost with how many properties yeah, they own.
1: Yeah, it gets confusing. So in most cases, it's 10. There may be. A couple that are unusual, like I think the lease option one, where I allow them to buy 20 percent down rentals and well as well, I limited the 20 percent down ones to 10, and also the nomad ones to 10. So you could technically earn 20, but they don't, they don't get there. Um, and then I think with maybe no I think, I think when I did the buy and hold one last week, I did one owner occupant and then nine additional rentals so that they all had 10 to max. Um, but we could go look at that. I mean, we have charts on everything you want to, you want to see. But I think that's I think it's 10 for most of them. So 10 moves. 10 moves for Nomad. Sorry. Oh, yes. That's what I was
0: getting at. How many times do you have to move? Yes,
1: 10 moves for Nomad. And you know, this is another reason why we need to do a full-day class, because you, I could show you what five Nomads look like. Or I could show you what three Nomads then 20% down after that looks like. And those can become interesting, because you get, you, you decide, hey, listen, I'm only willing to do this three times but then i'm willing to do 20 percent down after that and now i have like an asset base and some cash flow to help me with my savings and i'll get to there that might speed things up enough where the 20 where the 20 down now looks a lot faster because it was slower before right like this could be a way to jumpstart things and combine them or maybe you're like i'm willing to do short-term rentals for the first x years but then after that i'm done or i'm willing to buy a certain number of properties till i have kids and then i'm done or I can't start nomading until my kids are out of the house and then I start nomadding. So there's all sorts of variations on how to do this. And that's why there's probably multiple full day events for doing modeling like this. Or copy them into your account and change the assumptions yourself. Because you know you, you change the and we're talking about very specific characteristics of the properties. You change it to R numbers around here, they look different. You change it to numbers in Really, they look different. Um, and, and one of the things I'm doing is, if you go to realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model, what I'm working toward, and it's, I don't know, it's in very late alpha, kind of where I'd describe it for those that are programming people. Um, um, I'm actually taking 300 market data sets, what the price and rents and taxes and insurance and, and you know, maintenance and all this stuff is for 300 different markets, and running them through literally 100 different scenarios. You know, 15% down rentals, 20% down rentals, 25% down rentals, nomad, house hacking nomad, uh, ultimate real estate agent retirement plan, um, you know, by like house hacking, like all of these different variations. Or, you know, what if I get you know, 25% more income, or what if I get $100 per month more um, rent on properties, or $100 less in rent on properties, or, what if I hire a property manager or don't hire a property manager? What if I you know, do all these other things? And so there'll be like a hundred variations that compare themselves to each other based on that city's specific numbers. And so that's the thinking behind the podcast Reach City is there'll be classes that teach the information so that you understand what's going on. But then you need to look at you need to look at the um, um, I got distracted with a phone call. Um, you need to look at the uh, actual numbers for that city with all the different variations you have so that you can see the specifics for that city, and then you can still copy them all into your own account to be able to go and see, well, I'm not buying those priced houses or James, you're actually a little off on my city, you know, the numbers a little higher, and if I'm off on your city, please let me know because I can just change it and then click a button and rerun all the scenarios. That's why I'm writing the code to do that. Um. I don't know why I was telling you this story, except that it's a lot of variations if you want to do it, and it's specific for each city. I think that's where I was going with that. So, any questions on this? I think there's one slide left. All right, in conclusion, assumptions for modeling matter a lot. Right? You change one little thing, it's like the butterfly wings flapping and all that other stuff, right? I mean, you make one little tweak here, and that cascades out over you know 720 months and you know, you doing certain things. Should you pay off properties early? Like, you could decide to do that too. Or what if you got better than the assumptions I used in the stock market? Or what if you're afraid of the stock market and you're keeping this in savings accounts? All these things matter. And so I think changing all those things can matter a lot. Uh, if you change the assumptions for your income expenses, it changes everything. For market conditions, appreciation rate, rent appreciation rate, price, interest rate, vacancy rent, maintenance, property management, taxes, insurance, the stock market rate of return, you know, what you're investing in and its risk profile of what you're doing. And then your target monthly income retirement, you know, if it wasn't $5,000 a month might significantly change the numbers for these guys, might be better or worse, you don't really know. Um, The safe withdrawal rate you use, I mean, if you're using 4% or using much something much more conservative, because you're afraid of stock market stuff, and you want to be conservative there, that could limit your ability to achieve financial independence or change the numbers or characteristics. So, the strategies that work best in that market may differ. So you shouldn't use the numbers from tonight as like a fixed thing, but I think it's instructive to see how I set it up and what the assumptions were and kind of how they relate to each other for one particular person with one set of assumptions in the one market. Um, you got to do the math for your own stuff. And then I mentioned the, the website, realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model, and then just pick your city. And I think I did a whole bunch of I think I did 305 cities or something like that. It was about 300. Um, and so you can go look at those and see, like, how they all work. Do you have a question?
0: Sorry, right. I yeah. really like numbers. So I'm just curious in your assumptions, mm-hmm. um, you don't talk about health insurance benefits.
1: It's included in personal expenses.
0: In personal expenses. So yeah. my question is, that can change when mm-hmm. you have employment versus not. Does that change sure. in your calculations? or do you keep It's easy insane? to do, right? But so, I'm just saying, in your, in your modeling, can you change that?
1: Yeah, and I'm gonna tell you yeah. how to do it right now, right? So we said the the like how, when they achieve financial independence is when their income emits five thousand dollars a month. Yeah. So if they're working, and it's five thousand dollars a month, maybe for the retirement one, we say it's now five fifty or six thousand or whatever it is, right? So you just change what you need to have in retirement. And I did a class earlier this year where I had you walk through. Um, it's the budgeting class. I made a budget spreadsheet, and it's a special budgeting spreadsheet because most budgets allow you to kind of do a budget for today, right? They, they kind of do that. The My Budget spreadsheet had all the different things that you'd have as income and expenses. It mostly does expenses. income on the right-hand side, but it does mostly expenses, but then it has three columns. Bless you. It has column number one for what's your current stuff, like what are you spending money on now? Column number two is what's your minimum. What I would call is... If you really were tired of your work or you got sick and you couldn't really work or something happened to you like, and you were going to live a lean fire or sort of like your minimum where you're not going out to eat every every night, you're kind of, maybe you have Netflix but you don't have the other streaming services, like you really, really cut back and you had like a, a super lean budget. That's minimum target monthly income. Then you have a third column for your ideal. And, and, and basically, I have you write down, you know, okay, if, if I'm living my my current one, I'm spending this much on dining out. But for lean, I'm spending this much, and for my ideal, I'm spending this much. And so at the end of it, it gives you three different numbers. It gives you your number for today, so you know where you are, but then it gives you a number for if everything really got bad, like do I have enough and how close am I to have enough? And then the third one is, this is really what I'd like to live at, and so you have a number for that. And then later on, I show you how much you need from investments, cash flow and pensions and all that stuff. And so I do some math for you there to show you what the numbers you need for each of the three so that you can then quickly see where I am compared to that. And I think that's a better way, in my opinion, to do budgeting, to kind of do like your current, your lean and then your kind of target ideal one. Um, But that answers your health insurance question because when you do the health insurance section down there, you say, this is current, this is if I really had to stop working or I, I, got, I got to the point where I'm like, I'm done. And then this is, look, if I really want to be living my fat fire or total fire, whatever you want to call it, then this is my number for that. And you can go ahead and budget all three ways and see the differences between them. Yeah. So that, that's a, that sort of answers your question about how to do it, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, any other questions? that's all I got. Good stuff? Yeah, you're very, very welcome. Yeah, thanks for coming. I do appreciate it. It's good to see you guys. All right, on that note, I will see you all in the future. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up, and rents up but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates, cash flow on rental properties in Miami is harder than ever. Book a call with the real estate financial planner to apply our proprietary ADH strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today.
0: If you're a real estate agent, lender, or professional in Miami that wants to help our real estate investor listeners, consider reaching out to learn about collaboration opportunities with this podcast. We'd love to add more value to our listeners by having you assist our investors by sell and finance their real estate investments. See the show notes to schedule a call to discuss collaboration opportunities,